0: Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today, I first met 20 years ago. I'm 55. I was 35. We both went to a basketball camp, and we met at basketball camp. There, yeah. I think it was the the last year you were allowed to do it, or maybe the year, right? Because no, I think point, they
1: just stopped it. I think they stopped it because Michael came back, and they couldn't get all the NBA refs and all that kind of stuff, and then they just got all complicated.
0: But I remember... You know, Mark, I remember, and I wonder, you were already famous, and you already owned the team, but you were like 40, I think, or 42 or something like that. Something like like that, that, yeah. And it felt like you could almost make it so you were kind of one of the guys in that setting, and I think it must be much harder for you to be like one of the guys now, if you're not with your old friends.
1: No, I mean, I don't think so, because once you get over that initial hurdle of people like, what's this guy going to be like, right? Right. Yeah. Then once you, as long as you don't put on any airs or act like a dick, then people are pretty accepting.
0: Right, but I even mean it from your own perspective. Meaning, I it seemed to me then you were you. It was important to you to just be one of the dudes in the camp, and I don't know. It, it, are, I don't Are you
1: know. in? I, I, me. I mean, I, I have no problem farting in front of anybody. You know, <laughs> that tells you all you need to know.
0: Well, then I'm glad that we're doing this by Zoom uh, right now.
1: <laughs> Like you saw last time we got together in LA, right? I mean, you were in sweats, I was in sweats. I didn't care, you didn't care, right? It was no big deal.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you and I have become friends over this time period. So yes, it's very easy when we hang out. No, but I also, yes, I I wasn't even going to mention this, but it was great because every single person in that place recognized you except for the maitre d'. And I wanted to be like, can you please put Mark where he's not going to be bothered? And you go, nah, just let it go. And I thought that was, I thought it was great. I've never, you know, because you didn't. Yeah. You were willing to just like let the thing roll. All right, yeah. I've, I've thought about this convo for a while and I wanna to try to recreate the kind of conversation that we would have because Mark, I find you to be so generous of spirit and you're somebody that has been an incredible resource for David and me for the show and for Super Pumped, but you're also somebody who, I love how curious you remain whenever I spend time with you we end up having conversations that go way beyond sort of the surface thing and are about the world and our place in it. And uh, so I, I want to really let people who are listening feel some of that. And I, I guess where I want to start is like, what now gets you out of bed in the morning? Like where does your continued ambition come from? What is the fuel now for you?
1: Um, I love to learn. I love to compete. To me, business is a sport. And I like to be disruptive. And in order to be disruptive, you've got to always be learning, and you've got to always be willing to put yourself out there. And so those things all go hand in hand. And I don't want to give people the impression that I'm working 24 hours a day, you know, to to keep the wolves at the door or anything like that. I don't have a problem sleeping in. I don't have a problem taking a nap. I don't have a problem, you know, hanging with my kids and not, you know, or just going to Mavs games and shutting it all out. But you know, because I can control my own schedule. I can dig in on the things I want to dig in on and learn the things I want to learn and try to have an
0: impact where I want to have an impact. When you talk about competition, that's fascinating to me because, I mean, it feels to me like your peer group is small. And when you talk, you know, when you, I wonder how much of it is still competing with, with yourself in a way, because like, who, what are you? When you say compete, I also see you trying to make big changes in the world. So, I I'm I mean, talk a little bit more about that whole idea of competing. Is that still fuel you? Does that permeate? Oh, hell clean? yeah.
1: Because I remember when I was the young guy and no one gave me any respect whatsoever, right? And I remember thinking, okay, all you dinosaurs, you know, in the technology business that don't want to change, I'm going to torch you. And now everybody thinks I'm the dinosaur. So, I want to torch those motherfuckers who think they're going to come and get me.
0: <laughs> well, well, okay. I But I wanted to ask you, I had written this down to ask you about. We'll jump ahead. I had written this down, which is... One of the sort of hallmarks of who you were when you were really like carving out your place in the world was a rebel who saw the old guard's ways as being ways that didn't apply anymore, and that in fact were going to hold back the various industries. Yeah, but you, but you are a member of the old guard now. You're 63 years old, so it's I'm not one thing 63 to years
1: old. Don't ever believe Wikipedia. I'm 40, 33. <laughs>
0: You're 63 years old, and you've been a part of the establishment now for a long time. You're not the guy going in and telling the NBA they're fucking up. You're oh, yeah, I
1: do. I just don't get fined for it anymore.
0: Yeah, why don't you get fined for it anymore?
1: Oh, because that's part of who, you know, that's who what they expect from me, you know? And a lot of the things now, rather than just... When I first got started, I was the antithesis of every NBA owner, right? Right. Now NBA owners are more like me, (laughs) you know, they went from, you know, munching on cigars, sitting in the suites, you know, no one knowing who they were and then me coming in and changing that 180 degrees to, you know, Michael Jordan, now bomber screaming and yelling on the sidelines, right? You, so you get all these guys that, and women now, um, that don't, it's not a, a change when they're all into the game and yelling and, You know, and when it comes to disruptions, you know, there's a whole lot of 29 to one votes in the NBA that are never public that I'm the one, you know, and there's just no point. The part of the problem is, you know, when I first got started 20 years ago, media was far different. And so, you know, there was a way to use media to get my point across. And it really freaked out David Stern and the other owners when, you know, the brand was questioned whatsoever and over the next you know from 2000 to 2016 15 16 whatever it is you know before twitter got mean and and social media got you know bigger and more influential you know that i had to change because you couldn't just put it out on social media and traditional media was no longer the impact that it once was and so, you you know, I had to do more behind the scenes to have an impact, whereas at the beginning and for the first 10, 15 years, they were so opposed to anybody saying anything negative. And to me, you know, and then I would get fined and it was just a cost of doing business. Now, you know, Twitter has just changed the game.
0: So I understand the attitude that you have and for sure, like. Also, being sixty now is not the same as being sixty when you and I were thirty. Like, but just right. because of life expect, because the way people work out, because of all sorts of different aspects of 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 yeah. life. But but how do you guard against becoming calcified in your ways? Because it happens well, to successful me. people and old people, right? Yeah,
1: that's just um And it's funny you say that because I had a conversation with a kid, a guy now my age. I went to elementary school with. We literally lived. You know five or six houses apart from each other and we haven't stayed best friends but we've stayed in contact and he texted me about all this stuff that and he's successful and he's texted me about all this stuff that was going on in the neighborhood and these liberals this and these liberals that i'm like what the fuck happened to sex drugs and rock and roll bro right you know know, you're sounding like an old man open your eyes haven't you know have an open mind. Check your whole card every now and then. Don't you know, don't paint things in terms of liberal and conservative. That's the biggest mistake you can make. You know, and he said they. I'm like, who the fuck is they? You know, right. there's no they. Either you agree with an idea, you have your own ideas, or you don't. And that's really what I try to do. I always check my whole card, question, you know, my position and should I change it for whatever reason if information changes. I don't try to take sides. I'm not a liberal or conservative. And to me that, that, you know, and there's just an onslaught of new information continuously on every subject that you want to search. And so, you know, that's what keeps it fresh for
0: me. I want to talk about information a little bit and how you get it. I, this is another thing that I'd really, I really, I was thinking a lot about, as you know, I do because of what I think about and write about and the circles I've been able to move through because of what I do. So I have an interesting perch but I was thinking a lot about, like, you know, the movie The Highlander, and there's that prize mm-hmm. at the end, and the prize at the end is the guy gets to kind of know what everybody's feeling and thinking, and he can kind of access it. And in a way... I bought,
1: I bought Reicher. Todd and I bought Reicher, So at one point, we owned all the rights to Highlander.
0: Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, uh, then we yeah, sold it, so, yeah. But so the, you, in a, in a weird way, because of the combination of things, being a, a guy worth $3 billion, owning a sports team, but also because of your place in the culture, it seems to me like if you want to become expert on something, and I think this is the kind of thing people don't think about, but I think about it a lot. Like, can you talk about how you would become expert in something, meaning? Yeah, I mean, it's funny
1: that you say that because there's so many opportunities. Look, the leverage I have because of the platform I have creates unique opportunities. So when I walk into an industry People are like, what the fuck is he doing here? And so then, if I want to really have an impact, then it's just up to me to learn as much as I can about whatever that realm is that's important to me. It could have been, you know, it could be the SEC and insider trading laws when I went through all the bullshit that they put me to and just, just fucking with all the people. Like when I kicked the SEC's ass, I didn't just say the SEC was bad. I literally called out Jan Felina you know, um, oh, my God, Linda Thompson, all the people who were involved, you know, and I could do that. Most people can't because they're concerned about how that's going to impact their career or their future. You know, same with the NBA. I could call out David Stern or whoever and not think twice, but it take in order to do that, it takes a lot of time to learn what's
0: going on. Now, and I'm willing to put in the time. Well, but talk a little bit more about that because be, because it's f- fascinating to me, like I've had the ability because of what I do, you know, if I want to learn about something, I can get experts. But if you want to learn about something, it's at a whole, because you're like, you're one of the experts I would ask. And then you could either put me in touch or something. But can you talk about, like, if you wanted to learn about what's really going on I just in Russia, read. I read. Ukraine, I don't go talk what do you do? I don't go what do talk you do? to
1: people. I just read. And what do you read? Everything that I can. Everything that I can like when it came to determining whether, you know, I don't want to go the COVID direction, but yeah. So like making decisions for Mavs about COVID and employees about COVID, I read every research study, right? I signed up for every, right? I take the time too, to read when it comes to learning AI, I took tutorials, you know, I took, I took all the time it took to understand. And the good thing about technology, it's kind of like a Venn diagram, right? There's overlays and a lot of different things and you just got to figure out, um, Where the overlays are so you have a basic understanding, and then what are the things you're missing and just add to what you already know.
0: Wait, all right. I'm really interested in this. So I – we won't go in the COVID direction, meaning we don't have to – we won't make any statements about that. Who cares? Uh, But – You know, I think, you know, like very, very, very early, I was aware of what was going to happen. And I started collecting epidemiologists and lists. And I posted a list on January 26th, 2020 of all these epidemiologists. Yeah, Yeah, I was way ahead. But so I did all this reading. But then I also realized like three or four people I knew were probably experts. And I started getting them on a regular rotation because I wanted to test my ideas. So is there a point of the reading where then you start testing your ideas uh, against other smart people? Like, how does that process work That's for
1: you? how I use social media.
0: What does that mean? Meaning I'll put
1: something on social media and I'll just look at the feedback. And, you know, sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. Like, I'll give you an example of me being wrong. Um, I, I, I was of the feeling that when it came to section 230, um, yes. all, all the discussion, right, all yes. the discussion Whether about what I- Facebook
0: does... I'm fascinated by this, and I know your opinion, and I kind of agree with you. Well, but I changed my opinion. I changed
1: my opinion, right? So I was of the opinion that um, algorithmic amplification of any position was a problem because it wasn't truly free speech. It was a distortion of free speech.
0: It was a publishing choice. It was a curation and a publishing choice was your position.
1: Correct, correct. And then I talked to online when I said that on Twitter, there were a bunch of first amendment um, lawyers who just torched me, torched me and told me why all these different examples that weren't necessarily 230 examples where algorithms are one more form of free speech, you know, and they were right. And so, you know, because, you know, if, if I wanted using AI in, in, um, an algorithm to make choices on music playlists right where there's not you know not not a lot at stake that's as much an algorithmic choice of that's truly free speech because you want to express yourself as facebook doing the same thing to promote you know create algorithms and use ai to promote revenue right that's their choice and if it happens to be that one political persuasion creates more revenue than another even though it's bad for the country, it's still free speech.
0: Well, it's free speech, but it may be an editorial It, may be an editorial no, it may, choice. It may well be an
1: editorial, but an editorial choice is still free speech.
0: I agree with you. I agree that, so, that that's free speech.
1: And, and so even though it may be one or two, three steps removed from um, the algorithm itself and Section 230, but it's still free speech. And they gave me, you know, case law and all this stuff. And I went read the summaries of the cases and they were right. And so I pulled down my post and thanked them for correcting me.
0: And so you go through that kind of iterative process with big thoughts that you have or big ideas a lot. And you prefer that crowdsource thing to one on one interactions to like. To like calling the Secretary of State or the Chief of Staff of a President or whatever, and going yeah,
1: first, i don't want I don't want to use your time. Second, I don't want to be committed to the time. Third, there's no way you can cover everything. and it's it's very synchronous as opposed to social media is asynchronous. I could be it could be two in the morning and I can't sleep for whatever reason. The Mav's won or lost the game, and you know, I'm winding down, and I could be there just consuming all this information. Whereas, you know, if I talk to somebody who's right in the middle of it, let's just say it's an AI expert, it is such a a vast subject, there's no way in one or two or three or five hours, and it's always going to revert to, um, hey, watch this class I give or, you know, read this or do that. And I just try to get there first.
0: And were you always like, so I know all the foundational sort of stories, and I'll ask you some questions about it. but. Were you always someone who was doing a lot of reading on the outside to sort of figure the world out? Was that a big part of your high school years?
1: Not so much high school, but once I started my own companies, yes, because um, I I realized that most people don't do the work and everything I learned gave me a competitive advantage. And it was just a matter of who put in the time and whether I was in college, you know, starting a bar and reading about starting businesses, whether it was a job I had after college that I didn't do very well at. You know, I'll give you a perfect example. A a job I had for a very short period of time was at Mellon Bank in Pittsburgh. And there was an old magazine called Venture Magazine. And there was an article in Venture Magazine, and I'll never forget about um, how how a company, a big company can save money on social security costs um, and contributions that you make, payroll contributions, um, By doing extra A, B, and C. And I literally earmarked, bought an extra copy of the magazine, earmarked it, sent it to the CEO of 10,000 employee Mellon Bank, who thanked me profusely for doing it. But then my boss found out and just torched me, torched me. You know, and that's, that's who I was, right? Because I thought my only mission as an employee was to help them make more
0: money of course right but not aware at all of sort of like the all the uh, dynamics yeah politics or in intercompany yeah. dynamics that. and and so you were even when you were like living life partying opening your bar doing all that you were consciously trying to get oh, smarter yeah. and learn more <laughs> friend, and
1: i was living six guys in a three-bedroom apartment i didn't have my own room and every Sunday, I'd still find a way to buy the New York Times, and I'd sit in the bathroom—the only place where I could get any privacy—and there'd be stacks of newspapers that when I was there. And, and my buddies would kill me, just kill me, and they torch me to this day on
0: that. Right, but it was like really like a conscious thing. What were you? A, I would good... I would go
1: to bookstores and sit there for hours because I couldn't afford the books. Where I would, I would just read magazines, just looking for ideas when I first started my business. Or even when we started streaming with Broadcast.com, it was like I would re- I would go to um, Barnes and Noble or whatever and look at Cat Magazine to see if there were any sources of people that I could put on AudioNet or Broadcast.com because Cat people would not be able to get that stuff anywhere else, right?
0: Yeah. So that that was a constant, like conscious. it is is amazing uh, to me that that you had a conscious kind of program going of self-improvement on this. Oh, stuff.
1: always to this minute. Yeah. Always, always, because that's the currency for success.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I mean, you see, but I know mean, all I do is read, right? I yep. mean, that's been a, a huge part of my life since I was very little and I was not a good student. I just would but for my own self. I was always reading. Well, I, you I know, did. in
1: terms of school, like I started, my high school wouldn't let me take, um, an econ class my junior year because i wanted to learn more about business so i wanted to challenge myself so when i was um 16 i started taking night classes at Pitt, and then dropped out of high school my senior year to go to Pitt. they didn't have a business school so i transferred to the cheapest one that i got into which was indiana and then when i got to indiana there was when you would register they used old fortran cards right so nobody really knew if you were belonged or not and so I registered for um, a, an MBA class, MBA level statistics class, literally a, the statistics class that was taught in the MBA. And I was a freshman, right? It was my first year there. And I snuck in and they let, no one realized I wasn't supposed to be there. And I got an A in the class. And But the best part of the story, that's not even the best part of the story. My professor's name was Wayne Winston. Flash forward um, 1976, 20, um, four years, right? I buy the Mavericks, um, um, watching Jeopardy and I hear the name Wayne Winston, who was my um, stats yeah, prop. Yeah. He's killing it on Jeopardy. Flash forward a month or two, we're in Indiana playing the Pacers and I hear from the stands before the game, Mark, Mark, it's Wayne Winston. And I re- only would have recognized him because he was killed in, killing it on Jeopardy and I happened to see it. So we start talking again. I hire him to be our first, the first full-time analytics guy in the MBA, and he helps us win games, you know, doing all these lineup calculations and everything, only because I snuck in to his to stats, his stats class, class as a freshman. And by the time I was into my junior year, of, no, but by the time I was through the middle of my sophomore year, I, um, or was my junior, I forget. I had more than a year and a half of my MBA done, and then, but they didn't know I, I wasn't an MBA student, because they didn't have the the technology back then right it was all done manually sure and then i'm walking on on campus one day and the um the dean of the business school the mba school walks up to me starts poking me in the chest and he goes god damn it cuban i don't know how you hell you did this but you're not an mba student you're no longer in the mba program go to the motherfucking honors program like everybody else and we will transfer your
0: credits Oh, brutal. Did you end up getting the MBA or no? No,
1: by the time I was twenty, I had a year and a half of my MBA done. Why would I go and spend all that money? No, I got of course. It. I would tutor
0: people. I would have tutoring people on finance and shit when I was, you know, an undergrad. Were you uh, was Scott May on the basketball team when you were there? Is that who did? He graduated the year before I got there? And so who was the team?
1: The team was right after the championship team. So it was um, Quinn Buckner had just left too. Just left, so it was Kent Benson, Ray Tolbert. Oh yeah. Um. Oh, who else? Tony Brown, and a team. They went, and I remember getting there after a championship year, and they went like thirteen and fourteen, and they had three guys that ended up
0: being drafted in the first round. So wait, did season on the brink come out while you were at Indiana? No, I, or I just after? Right maybe after? Just yeah, right after. after. What a fascinating time to be there, though, with Coach. Oh Knight. yeah, it was great
1: because I lived in the dorm where there was a guy named Billy Cunningham, and there were some other guys that kicked off for, got kicked off for smoking pot, um, and it, it was crazy.
0: Wow, that's just after Bird like left too. Yeah, yeah, a couple years later. Yeah, that's just an amazing time to have been at that place for a basketball junkie like you. That's kind of yeah, like yeah, but I never went to any
1: games. I literally never went to the games. I would listen on the radio i just didn't i just didn't go to the games it wasn't to me it was i love basketball play basketball but it wasn't about sitting in the arena watching basketball you know i would listen to the games but that was it
0: talk a little bit about opening Motley's, which was this bar, because <laughs> I was just listening to an interview where you told this amazing story about when you were a kid. I have a couple questions to get here, actually, which is first, like, when I, can you quickly, for people who don't know it, because there's very little crossover between my audience and Barry Weiss's audience, so could you <laughs> tell, very little crossover, could you tell the story of, because I have questions about it, of the sneakers and the da- your dad's poker game, just oh, real quick. Oh, which just really
1: simple. Like, my dad and his buddies had a, a weekly poker game. You know, like lots of people. And one day I was at our house and um, and I I went in there asking for a new pair of basketball sneakers. And my dad looked at me and said, you see those shoes on your, your feet? They've worked pretty well. Um, you know, I went through the whole, but dad and, and he was like, when when you have a job, you can buy whatever you want. And one of his buddies piped up, probably drunk out of his mind and, and said, I've got these boxes of garbage bags that you can sell and then you can buy your tennis shoes and so they were boxes of a 100 of these chintzy garbage bags and i would go door to door and it'd be Amazing. like hi my name is mark i'm your neighbor do you use garbage bags
0: yeah well you said on that you said uh, uh you know of course i was good at it like who's not who's gonna turn me down and obviously you're one of the world's great salesmen like literally one of the greatest salesmen in the history of modern america but, that, but well you pr- no. i mean look it's uh, measurable in a way but You've also told me that you were like nerdy in high school. Like you were nerdy when you were young, not cool. Right. So I have a couple, I have a bunch of questions about this. Like, because our self image or our image of who we can be, but then who we are in the world, sometimes they're like at odds in a way. And so was there kind of a disconnect with like what you knew your capacity was and what was, what people around you thought? It changed, it changed at college because
1: you know, I hung out with kids who were smart, but not the super brainy kids, right? More And not technology nerdy, just like sports nerdy, right? We okay. weren't yeah, athletes, yeah. but we hung baseball out. Card, you know? Baseball like card, baseball card More like the show Diner, the movie Diner,
0: right? Yeah, my favorite. That yeah, was us. Yeah. We, would,
1: yeah, we would go to Woody Allen movies and crack up, right? You know, that kind of nerdy. But when I got to college, um, it was like, okay, this is my chance to establish myself as somebody, you know, uh, and just... I don't, I don't have the history with anybody, right? I'm on my own, you know, um, I'm doing my own thing. And
0: that's what I did. You could reinvent yourself. But were you tall when you were young? Or did you get tall later?
1: I got tall more um, my, as I went to college. I grew from like 5'9", five, 5'10", five, to 6'2", six, 6'3".
0: Six, that's a really big, that must have been a really big deal. That is getting contacts as- context.
1: That getting contacts instead of glasses. I wish I had a picture I could just bring up
0: just to show you. You've shown me. No, you showed me. Oh. Last time I saw you, you showed me. So oh, I that's know. right. I did
1: show you. Yeah, you yeah. showed and so, me. And so, I mean, literally I had glasses. So then I got contacts. And when I was like 12, 13 years old, I was playing baseball in a park down at the bottom of the hill where I lived. And I was running after an over the shoulder catch, ran into a bicycle, knocked out, um, broke two of my teeth right here but when I was in high school, my parents didn't have anything. So the caps they got me were not teeth colored caps. They were oh, no. stainless steel caps. And so if you look even at my high school pictures, you can see the little shiny thing. And my, people used to give me so much shit, be like, ah, ah, don't smile.
0: Oh no, it was like you had a grill before like hip hop yeah, made that a thing. I was
1: the first person in the world with grills.
0: Absolutely. That's incredible. And I never knew exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. You had come, but, but so where do you think the confidence came from as a salesperson? Because sometimes people who like, you know, Selling's easy. Ha- if you're helping people, selling is easy.
1: If you're trying to convince people to do things they don't want to do, selling is hard. And that's, that's what I knew. If I was doing, I mean, I sold magazines door to door. It'd be like, hi, madam. If I told you that. Um, for seventy-five cents per week, you can improve the education and entertainment of your entire family for years to come. Your husband's really going to appreciate that, won't he? And I would outsell guys twenty years older than me. You know, it's just helping. And what was it? it was that helping.
0: No, yeah, well, I understand. I mean, that is the good sales thing if you really believe that you're yes. you have their answer. And I I agree, by the way, it's no different than when Dave and I go walking into a room. Back before even billions, you know, if we'd go walk into a room and say like we have a, a story, a pitch, it would always be because we thought it would be great and it would work. Yeah, Otherwise, you can't do. You actually can't do it. I, if I didn't think I was solving like the president of the studio's problem with what I had, I couldn't walk in. So There's I get no that. There's no chance.
1: There's I get no that. chance. Yep. And know,
0: that's why we were good at it. Always. We never. Did, we sold everything we ever tried to you sell. You also because have to know that.
1: when you're lying to yourself too, right? Because all all salespeople, all CEOs lie to themselves. And that was one of the things I benefited from because I worked for some CEOs, you know, in early jobs that wanted to look good. You know, when I had my two for $99 polyester suits, they would give me a hard time and you know, talked about what kind of car they drove or wanted and this and that, and never really were top salespeople, even though they were the founders or CEOs. And I learned that, you know, if if I was going to start a company, I better be the number one salesperson. Otherwise, I'm going to follow the path that they took. And that was failure.
0: Oh, man, that's yeah, that's a powerful that is a it was a lesson. powerful yeah, for sure. insight. But here's something. OK, so I just want to stay with this one thing, which is when you when your dad tells you like, hey, if you want sneakers, go get them. That's a very and because because the story starts with you asking for them, that tells me that. That this was kind of a big moment, meaning it was a moment your father treated you differently than he had before on some level, which was no, like, hey, is, buddy. No, no,
1: it was always the case. It just happened to be his drunk buddy was there with garbage bags.
0: <laughs> oh, you mean that was the first time that you had the opportunity to work. Before that, yeah. you didn't have the opportunity. Oh, yeah. So, my dad,
1: you know, my parents both were consistent in it. If you want something, you got to earn it. You've got to figure it out. And, and they were also very honest. Neither one of them went to college. I mean – my mom was 19 when they got married, 20 when she had me, you know, they didn't know shit. And my dad worked in an upholstery store before that. He managed a, um, he managed national record March store. And then, you know, he was in world war two and Korea and all that shit. And, and, and did um, they
0: feel like, did they feel like they didn't have enough? Like, was it a constant thing in your house that we don't, we don't have enough and we're not, we're not rich. And was that a constant sort of refrain? Yeah.
1: I mean, I would say we don't have enough, you know, they did not You know, you're not going to tell your kids, "Hey, we're broke." You know, type of thing. At least my parents went. But there, there was always, you know, get out of the damn shower. You know, you're running up the water bill. Close the fucking door. I'm up. You know, my you know, we can't pay the heating bill. Or when the heating bill got cut off one time. You know, it, it's just, yeah, there was well, that kind that, of stuff. Th-
0: no, that's a big deal, though. Hold on. I mean, when the heating bill got cut off. You know, that is a that's that a- only happened
1: once that I remember. That right, I but that's
0: happen. still a real, th- but but that's a real thing, Mark, right? Yeah, either, I wonder... no, they
1: were depression kids, right? And, and you know, when I went to go visit my grandparents when they were alive, you know, it wasn't like they lived in nice places. The places right. they lived were dumps. And right. even I knew that they lived in, you know, one step from Lower East Side, New York, right? I mean, it, it, you know, there were nice houses in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh, and ours was not one of them. And I remember going to to somebody's house down there one time, and I was just like, oh, my God. You know, that was just so foreign to me. But my dad, you know, my dad had a a good job, but he worked, you know, as an upholsterer, if you had a rip in your car seat, you know, and he never made, you know, he worked, you know, seven in the morning till five or six at night, except on Sundays and Saturdays, he worked half a day, you know, and that's all the time except for the yeah. one week vacation we had to go drive yeah. somewhere. Always. Um, and he would take me down there and let me sweep the floor, not because he wanted me to potentially have a job there, but because he wanted me to see what backbreaking work was. And I remember, you know, I was 10 years old, 11 years old, when he was working there and I, and my mom pulled me out of school because my dad had lost an eye in an accident at work. And, and so, you know, he never made more than $40,000 a year in his life. And he worked until he was 72, no matter how hard I tried to convince him not to, you know.
0: He kept going even when you could have just yeah. taken care yeah. of him. I
1: mean, because what else was in his mind, what else was he going to do? You know, it, it, it was just who he was.
0: And, and did so did, did you have a conscious thought at a certain point, I'm going to have freedom. I am not going to live oh, yeah. this life. Oh yeah. And, and and it became a North Star to you? Do yeah, you remember? Sure. Like when oh, yeah. when did that happen, do you think? Oh, in
1: college for sure. Like in high school I knew I was gonna be an entrepreneur. I, look, Mike I have been entrepreneurial since I was nine or ten years old. I would repackage and package baseball cards and sell them to my friends and make some money. You know, I was I was the the hustler in class. That makes total
0: oh. sense that you're gonna hustle, right? But a lot of people hustle. I look and studying so really I read a book yeah.
1: called How to Retire at the Age of Thirty Five when I was like twenty. 19 okay. or 20. And that was my North star. That was my mission. And it was like, okay, if you save up enough money to live like a student, then you can just retire. And to me, that was the ultimate mission. You know, somebody asked me the other day why we sold broadcast rather than continuing to run it. And I, I, I told him cause my goal wasn't to run a company the rest of my life. My goal was not to run a company the rest of my life. You know, when I sold micro solutions um, I had a watch and I took off that watch and said, I'd never wear a watch again until I got an iWatch. You know, I never wore a watch until, you know, I, for something that wasn't really a watch.
0: No, and we're going to get to the micro solutions and your first attempt at, at retirement. But I, but, but one thing that's really interesting about your, the timing of you doing this is like, you were 12 years old in 1970. Like, in 1974, you were 15 when Nixon resigned. And so like a lot of- I actually was
1: at 60. I was 16 and I was in Russia when that happened. I had, bought, I had built a stamp collection and sold my stamp collection. And my parents gave me a little bit of money, saved up a little bit of money for me because I took Russian in high school. My nickname to this day with my high school kids is Boris because the name I chose, you know, from um, Rocky and Bullwinkle, Natasha and Boris. Girl picked Natasha, I picked Boris. And, you know, they had the school trip and I um, sold my stamp collection and my parents gave me a little money. I went over there in August 8th, 1974. I was in Russia when Nixon resigned. But
0: but this was one of the first times of where uh, young people around 14, 15, 16 were so disillusioned with what was happening with the OPEC. You know, all these things happen at once. Right. Nixon, OPEC gas shortage. It was all this period of time. And a lot of young people at that moment were like, fuck you to the establishment and to sort of like the ideas of capitalism. Well, I was
1: I was in that middle ground right where the the hippies that were a little bit older were the fuck you because they were getting drafted to go to Vietnam.
0: Yes. Right? Yes. And
1: I, I'll never forget, literally never, ever forget. And I don't think I've ever talked about this. I remember being 15 when they ended the draft. And just sitting in my room, in my room, bawling my eyes out because I was within months of having to register. Oh man, that's heavy. Oh, I was, because I was terrified. Because I had friends, you know, older um, brothers and siblings of friends that didn't come back or were really fucked up. And it wasn't like I lived in a world where, okay, we have a way to get you out. No, I was the guy. I mean, me and my friends, we were prototypical who they were coming after. To, you were going. To go. Yeah, you you were going. I was gone if, I, if my number came up. There was no doubt about it. And, you know, maybe to some people that seems like un-American. I don't know, but I was terrified like a motherfucker. No, no, and, no. You're not um, saying you
0: wouldn't have gone. You're saying you would have gone. You just didn't want to. You were hoping yeah, not to you go. Know,
1: and it was like, oh my God. I, I just remember just ball in my eyes out at 15 when that happened. It was like November of 1973 or some, something like that. And um, oh my God. The, to me, it was like the greatest relief in my life at that point in time.
0: Of course. But you didn't... That makes complete sense. I don't, did you read Springsteen's autobiography, his memoir? It's great. But he talks... Oh, you'd really like it, I think, whether you love the... Mu- like you would love it. Like sports, but he, yeah. he talks about his some older friends who didn't come back and like what it felt like, um, what it felt like to deal with that thing, because he's like, you know, that next generation older than, than, than you. And he was like, lost a lot of people. And I think it hit. Oh
1: yeah. Fucking I mean, hard. Look, my friends had older brothers and none of us, you know, were in a position to get out of it. None of us had connections or anything like that. And some went to college, but not all did. And but did
0: you, did 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 you feel, but you didn't have any of that sense of, so you were kind of between these eras in a way where between the eras of like the the, the kids who were a little younger than you who became the eighties, pure capitalist kids and the, and the hippies. So you were kind of left yeah, to you own. know, No,
1: I was, I was core to the yippie movement. Right. You know, and, you know, and, and so to me, but I never, I it's not like I associated with a movement it was just me. That's, you know, just like now I don't, I don't, I'm not a joiner. It's just like, what do I think is right? What do I think is wrong? And you know, what am I trying to do? And, and that's who I, I pretty much always have been. And I've, I, you know, i never, I mean, my mom had me going door to door for McGovern. That was our big step into politics, <laughs> um, but, and door hanging. But yeah, I was never, big into politics like when my first time i voted was 1980 and i voted for john anderson the independent yeah sure and, and so that
0: was my first vote there's a john anderson reference in billions this season it's coming And like the next it's already been shot so you'll enjoy that moment uh chuck senior says something about john anderson maybe <laughs> oh, great. Two, maybe two episodes maybe two episodes from now uh he does So, what did the experience of Motley's do for you? You know, you obviously uh, you, you you decide in college you're going to open a bar. It's a becomes a hot bar. Uh, it ends up having to close for some bullshit or some reasons. Uh, you wanted
1: underage drinkers and one yeah, of them under, to be a sixteen prostit- year old prostitute.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. So I didn't know that part. I knew there was a wet shirt t-shirt concert yeah. something, but but no. But what did? Can you talk about like the 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 totality of what that experience meant to you, because obviously it made you uh, huge confidence. Owning water. a bar, yeah, because also you become a big man on campus. Like it, it's yeah, it's I a was whole the big thing. man on
1: campus. It was insane, right? It was insane.
0: What started? Um, I've never heard you talk about like the initial, the very. I, I've I've heard a lot. I've never heard you talk about sort of like how you got that idea, and then like what was missing in the town that you thought, okay, I'm gonna do this.
1: So. um, We would throw my starting my freshman year, my friends, Ben and Tom and Tim and others would throw these parties um, in our dorm. And then we started charging a little bit for them. And I'm like, oh, you know, I if I throw a party now, people are showing up and if I can charge a few bucks, I'll make a few bucks. And then we um, our sophomore year, we rented out the Bloomington National Guard Armory and just had this blowout blowout and made enough to pay for that year of school. And um, yeah, no, it was great. We are you know, this is in the 70s and we're charging five bucks a head or whatever. I have one of the invitations still around here that I kept and we just killed it. Rented buses to get kids to and from the dorms. It it was awesome. And then we, to raise money to do it more, I found a bar right next to campus called the Silver Dollar Saloon. And they were a true disco back then, right? They had the, the lit floor. And we would, I would throw parties like on Monday and Tuesday nights. And the deal was I got to keep the cover charge and that's how I helped pay for more and more and more school. And that's how I got my spending money. And then it got to the point was, all right, you don't know shit. I can bring a crowd. You know, my friend and Evan, I Evan actually was the, the real star behind it. Evan Williams, who's still a great friend today. Um, who was on the rugby team with me. And you know, he, he had some money. He had a real job. And he put up some money. I put up two thousand dollars. He put up fifteen thousand. I put up two thousand of my stu- twenty five hundred of my student loan money that I just got. Oh my god! And and we turned it from a boom boom disco into playing things like All Right Now by Free and. You know, if you think I'm sexy by Rod Stewart, you know, and all that. It was like 1979 so wait, and so 80. So you
0: go into the owner. Did you know the owner might sell? Like you knew they were having problems? I, we, I knew problems. he was losing money
1: because that's why he was letting a kid who was underage throw parties on Monday and Tuesday night.
0: How did you know he was losing money? I mean, you just figured it out. Why would he give me the door? Right. He, ne- he needs the crowd. He needed, he needed the crowd
1: because then I'd go in there on a Friday, Saturday night. He didn't care what how old I was and there was nobody there.
0: I mean, do you think, okay, so many of us just walk walk through life and like, whatever, I'm not, I'm not going to pour my mouth. I obviously I've, I I walked through in some way I'm looking at stuff too, but, but so many people I think walk through life and they're not looking for how something might become an opportunity. And how did you train yourself? Because part of this story is about you training yourself. Like everyone's having a good time throwing a party, but something's going on with you. That's different. Uh, You know, it's like I tell my kids and agnosium,
1: and I say this when I talk to younger kids, I say, look around, look at everything around you, that microphone, that, you know, everything in front of you. One day it wasn't there and then somebody had the idea to do it and then the next day it was there. That chair, that desk, that TV, whatever it was, it could be the t-shirt design. One day it was there and then the next day, one day it wasn't there and the next day it was. That means millions of people have come up with ideas that turned into products and services and things. Why not you, right? Why can't it, you know, why can't you come up with an idea? Like that's the way I've always thought about things. And, you know, as I got better and particularly once I got into micro solutions, with micro solutions, the whole idea, I remember getting fired from my job, going to um, Galveston with Greg Shipper and Scott Susans, getting plastered, but I had a yellow notebook and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna start this company. Cause I, you know, I'm broke, um, I've got nothing, it was a great trip. We we all piled into this his celly cup. And we went and we were in this hotel room. And I'll never forget, we plugged in. We, he brought a, a hairdryer, plugged in the hairdryer. And the whole thing started barking. <laughs> and the whole room started you know, smoking. But, um, you know, and I remember writing, you know, my business plan. And I wanted a name that everybody understood. So we called it, it was going to be um, supporting microcomputers. So it was micro solutions. And I remember the key to my presentation was, you know, our job is to make you more productive, more profitable and give you a competitive advantage. And once I figured that out and I made that my mantra, then everything made sense. Right. Because I can walk yeah. in and, and and because I love to read about business, because I love business in general, if it was a shoe store, I would tell I would tell, OK, I understand how a shoe store works. You need to sell more shoes at the margin. You need to get whatever it may be. If it was a dental practice, I understood. I could, you know, one of my strengths was I could put myself in the shoes of any type of business, any type of potential customer prospect, and understand from their perspective what was important to them and do it in a second. It's like a shark tank. They, Someone walks in on a shark tank, well, yes. everybody else is trying to figure it out. I already know what's important to their business before they're, they're finished with their business. Of pitch.
0: course. Of course. Well, that level of, I mean, it's something like empathy, right? Where you can sort of put yourself in the shoes of the person. And I've, I've asked you versions of this, but but I do notice that you do understand I- emotionally what's going on. and And I wonder if sometimes the fact that you have the capacity to, to help so many people if you want to, I just wonder if it's torture sometimes, because you can't. Sometimes it is. Sometimes I do wonder it about it. Like, yeah. is it like... Be,
1: because well, you Well, Shark know, you're takes a perfect this- example, right? Shark takes a perfect example. Someone walks in and parts of me just go, oh my God, I can help this right. person. But it's going to take so much time that I don't have, right? Or, you know, I don't have the exact right person to help them. And that just annoys the shit out of me. Or I get an email from somebody, hey, I'm 16 years old and I've got da 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 da. And I'm like, I just can't. I just can't because it's just. Yeah, because you're,
0: you can't get embroiled because it'll hurt. Because actually, it'll hurt, (laughs) and you can't.
1: A hundred other things, yeah.
0: And 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 ultimately, like, how can you be responsible for it? But I just imagine, I just imagine it's a heavy weight on some level. Just writing
1: a check for somebody,
0: you know. Like
1: I've paid for transplants, I've paid for you know people on their last leg. But you get somebody, you know, I'm getting kicked out of my house. You know, you can't do them all. You just can't do them all. And I have to hit the delete key be- before it hits me emotionally. Right. Because you can't. You can't. You can't. And it hurts. I don't I, like it. It hurts me. It literally, physically, it hurts me um, because I know I could, but I can't, if that makes sense.
0: It's, yes, It. I, say more about about that, that you can't because... I could write the check, but... Where then, do you draw the
1: it's not even about drawing the line. It's just, it takes time. Right. And I've got foundations. Sometimes I'll point in the foundations, but sometimes it just doesn't fit. Right. And it's not, it's the emotional side of it that gets me interested, but I can't do everything for everybody. Right. A, there's just not enough hours in the day. B, I'll run out of money at some point. Right. And I want to have something left. Right. And and then some, and then other times I just feel like I'm being taken advantage because so-and-so said that you helped them and I'm worse off and da da. da da And no, so of course. there's lots of times what I'll help people that I don't know that I've never met, no, have, have no interest in meeting because I don't want that emotional connection. You know, it's, it's, it's okay if it's transactional to me, but if it becomes emotional, then it gets hard. And then it, it turns into a physical and mental strain that I don't want to go through.
0: And how do you balance it out in your, in your, in your life like with your friends all the people from high school or all the people from whenever how do you know when it's okay because like there's a burden to it all for them too but they're my friends i know if their shit's fucked up yes
1: and you'll just i know i know yeah if they don't know then they're not a close friend
0: yes but it's not even the shit's fucked up i'm sure sometimes you look at a friend of yours and you're like i would like to send them on vacation
1: no i didn't I did that for my college girlfriend and she said (laughs) I love this you did I I figured nieces nephews right where it's just like okay you know you've been you were important part of my life and so and and so she said she was down under luck she had some hard times and you know so I sent her money every month it's just auto deduct right and so this year you know she's my age and um she has a special needs child that you know is older but still special needs so I sent her a, a big check and I said, you know, and I didn't say anything, I just had my assistant send it. And then she emails me, calling me the same name she called me when, you know, which I'm not gonna say when we were dating. And yeah, she, pookie. Asked, guys, she calls you, know, you Pookie whatever. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, <laughs> and she's like, did you guys make a mistake? I'm like, no, no, just go have a fucking great time. You deserve it.
0: Right, that's awesome. I mean, that must feel really wonderful uh, yeah it does do
1: you know it just you know because she was there for me you know when i was in college and you know it was my hardest breakup of any girl i ever broke up with but you know we stayed in touch and stayed friends
0: a couple other things that are slightly different from this but that i've want to talk about you know people often conflate like when you guys went public with when you sold the company but those were very different events and very different events in terms of what they meant to you sort of financially and freedom wise right Mm -hmm. but so i wanted to ask about that like when you so when you went public and you suddenly had a hundred million dollar net worth or close enough to that did you still were you surprised that you still had a hunger to get to this no, next No, No, that was the
1: most. No, because there were people who were betting on me, and that, that wasn't an accomplishment. That was an obligation. Because wow. I remember I got an email from, because when we went public, it was the biggest first day jump in a stock in the history of the market to that point. Now, it's been superseded since then. But, um, and we price at 18, it went to 72 and closed at 62 and three quarters, something like that. I got an email from a lady saying she bought at 72. And I'm like, fuck, now
0: I understand, right? Right? I gotta, oh, wow. I go you did. Work. So yeah. you put that on your back, Mark. Yeah, of course. Of course. And so that wasn't a time where you
1: felt freedom. No, no, I felt obligation. It's like, I got to do this. Now, look, when you start a company like that, you know, and we're trying to create an industry, which we did, despite all the shit I get, right? We created the streaming industry. There was no streaming industry. Audio, video, there were companies that we dominated. As dominant as YouTube is now, we were that dominant in the 90s. And, um, and so I was on a mission to, to dominate all things media. You know, all things media. We bought 10% of a um, movie studio, Trimark, that then became part of Lionsgate. Um, we bought, you know, we we bought these companies that did user generated content uploads and all this other stuff. We just we were crushing everything. Um, so that wasn't the freedom aspect of it. when we sold to Yahoo. That was about freedom. That was all about freedom.
0: Yes, but also that was about freedom. You became a billionaire. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I've heard you talk about enough that you knew a billion dollars was enough at the time. You didn't want to be greedy. You made this weird deal that nobody had made. (laughs) Yeah, but you made this weird deal that nobody else made. And I I wonder if you could just talk a little bit when I, so when, when, you know, that's a story. It's a great sort of like soundbite thing. Okay. I didn't want to be greedy. So I set up this collar so that no matter what my downside would be, I hedged it to a billion dollars. But, but there's no way you just came up with that all on the fly. So like, I'm curious about how long you'd been thinking about like, okay, if I get to an event, I, this is what's important to me. Like, did you write that out for yourself? Did you think about it? how did you know what was important to you? In oh, that like I said, attitude? I read that
1: book, How to Retire at the Age of 35. After I sold Micro Solutions, I bought a lifetime pass on American Airlines right. and I was not going to work again. And it wasn't until Todd Wagner came and we started talking about, you know, and he was asking me about all the streaming stuff, because I think what people don't realize after I sold micro solutions, my initial thought was I had a broker at Goldman Sachs and I told him to invest like I was 60 years old and I was 30. Right. And and I wanted to invest like an old man. And then he kept on coming to me with these questions about technology companies, companies that I had bought, you know, used their products. And all of a sudden, when I would say something, the price of the stock would move. Uh, and I was like, and he's like, you need to be, you know, this stuff better than the analysts, right? So you need to be investing in these things or shorting them as, as it may be. And I started doing that and I made $20, 25000000 million before we even started. So I was in good shape, right? And on top of that, we started a hedge fund base because I was making 80 plus percent a year. And then I sold it within like 90 days. It was crazy. You know, yeah, that's that, crazy. Yeah. That's and, crazy. Uh, I, w- I was crushing it. I was set. You know, I, you know, for back then that was fuck you money. And so, um, but then Todd came to me and I don't want to work again. So I literally wrote him a check for $75,000 and said, okay, I'll be an advisor. I don't want to run it. And then as I started realizing the per- the people he had that he was working with were weren't capable so i like okay i'll write a check for 250 i'll come in and we'll start making this happen and i had i had a, a building that i had bought in deep ellen part of town in dallas that they were already re um, um customizing it for me to have a half court basketball court and a um set up uh, on, on the roof or rooftop stuff, where I, I, it was the party part of town, and I was just gonna party like a rock star. I could stay down there, stay at my house, shoot hoops, whatever I wanted. It was amazing, but we turned it into an office, tw- and that's why it was 2929, it was 2929 Elm Street, and yes. that's when I dove in. And when I started diving in and getting into the technology and really pushing, that's, you know, and that was only, you know, months after we started, it just blew up.
0: But did you plan ahead of, okay, I'm looking at this bubble, I see where we are, I have to find a way. No, did not. So how did, did that come to be that you set that set that structure up to protect yourself? Like, oh,
1: once we sold it, right? I look, because I traded those stocks for all those years, you know, and started to create huh. a hedge fund that got sold. You know, I could tell you stories about, you know, stocks in the 80s that went straight up and straight down, like, you know, WordPerfect and all these different companies that were big. So
0: you were aware of it. So you were I, aware I it was stocks. possible.
1: I, yeah, I knew that the I knew it was going to crash. It was just a question of when, because I did that you tell, multiple times.
0: And did you tell Todd to protect himself, yes. too?
1: Fuck yeah. I told all and, of our employees that. And some of them got mad at me because, it, you know, when they collared, the yahoo because we sold for yahoo stock right not for cash the the price of yahoo stock kept on exploding
0: right and that's how you got taken out on the collar but then and you obviously were very wise because when it all plummeted so todd collared and protected with you because you had that idea that's how come he still got two billion I'm like, todd, how much
1: money do you need right how much money do we need how much is enough this is more money none of us dreamed to be well that's a lie when with the day we went public, um we were predicting, um, what the stock would close at. Right. And we priced at 18. I, you know, they all predicted in the twenties. I'm like, no, it's going to be at least in the mid thirties, it goes to 60. And I knew exactly where the price had to be in order for me to be a billionaire. And so I'm like, you just wait, this market is so insane that we've got a chance. And so
0: that was part of the motivation. Was you, but you then said the thing about enough and being enough. So you're the, you're the person who challenges uh, a lot of people's assumptions and, and in the course of your life, but how do you build into your own life? Like, I remember I used to play pickup basketball with a movie star, I don't wanna say who, who it is now, though I'll tell you, but a movie star, everyone talks about what a good basketball player is. And I played in this game and it was at an agent's house. And I noticed this guy was okay, but whenever he would go up for a layup, Nobody would fucking block his shot. They didn't want to foul him hard because they were agents. And I would look at it, and he thought. I remember being it was on the that much better, better, right? Yeah. Because I've played my whole life, you know. So I would d up on him because what did I give a fuck? And also because, like, I played my whole life. So I thought I was like, holy shit, when he goes in for a layup, they kind of like with their hands, they kind of go like, let it go. <laughs> but it's a great metaphor to me for somebody in your position because you can go through life that way, Mark. Yeah, and there
1: is some of that. I'm not going to lie. Some people will do that, and I hate it.
0: Right, but not on the. But how do you in life make sure that your assumptions are challenged? Meaning, who do yeah, you have, have in new your areas life? all
1: the time? Like we just started Costplusdrugs.com plus drugs.com yeah. right? To just disrupt the entire drug pricing industry, and you know we're going to fuck them up. We already are. If you go, you know, we have one hundred and ten drugs, give or take. Now, by the end of the year, we'll have at least a thousand, hopefully two thousand, and we're selling shit that you know we're selling generic drugs that because of the distortions in the, the pricing of drugs through these things called pharmacy benefit managers, well, you know, we'll sell stuff for $6 that they sell for 6000
0: No, I it's mean, crazy. It's even I see it in my, like in the, you know, I, I get my health insurance through the Writers Guild and it's great insurance, but you see what certain generics
1: Yeah, even if you have certain...
0: insurance, right? We don't take
1: insurance, but our prices are so low that they're lower than your copay. So you may have great insurance and your copay is $25, you know. Um, and so you can just come to us and it might be $12.
0: So how are you able to how are you able to do this? And who is it for? Who's the audience for this? Who's the, the audience is everybody,
1: right? Because our goal is to be the lowest cost provider of drugs, period end of story, starting with generic drugs in the country. And because that's our mission, and it's not to make as much money as possible, it's set up as a public benefit company. We, we are very transparent. So if you go to costplusdrugs.com and let's just say you use Propecia and you want to use um, Finasteride, right? And, and so I don't know what you pay with your insurance or if it's covered by insurance. Ours is like $4.17 for a month, you know, so it doesn't matter. There's, there are, um, in my tab, I can't even pronounce the shit that some places will charge three, 2000, 5,000 or 9,000 ours is per month. Ours is $47. We take our cost. How did you do that? So how did you do this? We, um. so my partner is Dr. Oshmayansky and Ryan Klein. Dr. Oshmayansky is one of these people who makes me feel dumb. He's that smart. Um, not that it takes much to me. <laughs> no,
0: yes. <laughs> you know what I'm on. saying? He's, yes. he's a rocket
1: scientist. And he's a radiologist. He's a mathematician. And he's also a pharmacist. And he cold emailed me and we started talking about you know what it would take to disrupt it and he was going in one direction that would only disrupt a little segment and i was like no here's how we do it to just turn the whole industry upside down and we do that through transparency so if you go to costplusdrugs.com you'll see what we pay for a drug and then we mark it up 15 percent we charge you three dollars to fulfill through true pill who's our pharmacist partner and then five dollars for shipping and when our prices go down your price goes down. So last week we just lowered the price on four different products because our costs went
0: down. And so and you can go to the Drush. So you can go to the manufacturers, or you guys manufacture the generics. Now?
1: So we both. So right now we go to the drug manufacturers or wholesalers, but we're building an eleven million dollar manufacturing plant in Dallas, not far from that place in Deep Ellum, um, where I have my little crib. And um, already we have we've only been we've been working on this for three and a half years. Um, but we've only been online since January 19th and we have tens of thousands on some days, thousands of people signing up every day. You go online, you follow my Twitter feed where I, we, we treat some of these people. We've changed people's lives. People who have had to, um, choose between medication or food or housing or rationing the medication for the drugs we carry. Those days are gone.
0: So does this hit your sweet spot? Is your sweet spot now to essentially still do things where there's a profit motive and you can do well and do well for your partners, but also twinning that with doing something good. Like, is no. that baked into your shit now or no?
1: No, no. On this one, it's not about maximizing profits. I'm not bringing in any, I know partners. you're not
0: maximizing. I know you're not maximizing. No, we're, we're just cost plus 15%. And
1: that hopefully is enough to cover our costs and allow us to reinvest some. And so I'm not bringing in any other investors, even though there's a lot of interest. Because I don't want people to think this is about making more money and returning to investors. So the employees own stock. um, Dr. Alex owns stock. I own stock. But it's a public benefit corporation. And so hopefully we never take a penny out. Hopefully we make enough to just reinvest, reinvest, reinvest and just fuck up. The entire drug industry in ways that, you know, it's almost like Elon did to the automotive industry where they were very dismissive, very dismissive, very dismissive. And now the whole future of all the main auto manufacturers is electronic vehicles, electric vehicles, right? Right now, it is such an insensuous industry, the drug industry, that they've done a great job of making the drug manufacturers the bad guys. And they're not literally the bad guys, the bad guys are the insurance companies. And the pharmacy benefit managers that take extract rebates from them, and because of that distortion, and it's so ingrained, and there's so much money involved, they may be able to come in and underprice us for a short period of time, but they can't sustain it over a long period of time, and we'll fuck
0: them up. And are you are you really for sure made the decision you're never going to run for president?
1: Yeah, I'm positive, because I can have more of an impact here. You know, if I can start with this and just really change the game here. Hopefully, I can extend it to other things in in healthcare as well.
0: And and you won't run even if you think that the uh, that even if you thought that Trump had a shot to get reelected, you wouldn't no. run to try to stop. Him.
1: I told somebody, you know, you you know, I, I give them things that I know will never happen. I said, if you get ten incumbent senators who are not up for reelection from each party to leave their parties and join, you know, together, then I'll go run. But until but that's not going to happen. Right. Because well, then
0: would it get you would it get you crazy if you see The Rock do it and get elected and it could have been you? Will it bother no, you? Not
1: at all. Fuck no. I don't care because all this shit, you know, there's just no way putting my kids if, if, if my kids were all grown and out of the house. OK, maybe. But hey, if The Rock can get elected, and if he's good, more power to
0: him. I, I agree with you. Uh, last question, you know obviously the lessons you got from your parents, they're 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 valuable but they're hard to to you know, you, you don't live the same life your parents lived. How do you pass on to your kids these yeah. values? And does it bug you? Does it concern you? Scares the
1: hell out of me. Scares the hell out of my wife. You know, just like I'm sure you face, right? It's just you try to convey and you tell stories and you've set limits, but they're not stupid. You know, my eighteen year old daughter is going to Vanderbilt and she's not worried about what it
0: costs, (laughs) you know? Right. So it's hard. So you have to, you you just try to tell the lessons and it's hard. Yeah.
1: And the good news is, you know, when you talk to, you know, parents of their friends and talk to people that they interact with, you know, or more importantly here at secondhand where they're not telling you, but they're telling other people, you know, the feedback is good, you know? So I'm very, very proud of my kids. I'm excited for them. Um, but they're they're their own people. But yeah, it concerns me that they end up being entitled.
0: Yeah, right. Because they, oh, it, it's more just you had to do this stuff, and yeah. they they don't. Yeah, just like my
1: parents did. Every generation, you know, when my grandparents came over, you know, half came from the Ukraine for the most part, half came from um, Lithuania. It was leave or die.
0: <laughs> yes, you know? I mean it's different. I look in my in my house. It was touch or go. Enough years as a screenwriter that my kids. I mean, you know, my son, he's a very industrious yeah, guy. He's, and my yeah, he's great,
1: th- super th- smart. Daughter
0: yeah. was. Uh, my daughter's very industrious too, but she's younger. Um, hey man, thanks for doing this. You're yeah, uh, for sure. You know, you've always just been so generous with me with your time, and 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 you've been a good friend to me, man, and I really appreciate right. it. So thanks. Hey, I'm still ta- waiting for my
1: billions callback. I'm waiting for my billions callback.
0: It's, it's a let me ask you a question. Have I ever told you a lie in your life? Do you no, know you're coming I'm, back? I know
1: I'm coming back. I, but people always ask me, how come you're not on this season? How come you're on the season? That's one of the next, toughest
0: questions I face. That's hilarious. You know, because <laughs> it was a, a transitional season, but you're back next yeah. season, 100%. All right. Thanks, Mark. I'll talk to you, you soon. You got man. it, man.